God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most holy place where the high dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Good morning. Less than an hour ago, the last of 2,977 names were read aloud on Memorial Plaza at Ground Zero, Lower Manhattan, New York City. Names of 2,977 human beings who were murdered on September 11, 2001. 1,039 Sabbaths have come and gone since many of us gathered in our churches on that first Sabbath day following the worst natural catastrophe any of us had ever witnessed. We came into our churches that day because of all places, church was where we needed to be to find sanctuary in time and space at the end of the most shocking week most of us had ever lived through. During the preceding four days, our eyes beheld terrible things that our God never intended his human family to have to see. We watched transfixed in real time as masses of people perished before our very eyes in terrifying ways. And then we watched and rewatched the replays, unable to pull ourselves away, unable to comprehend the magnitude of what we saw. But those sights were so burned into our lives that even today, 20 years later, we remember with crystal clarity those images. Dirty black clouds bleeding from ugly mortal wounds in two silver towers standing against the brilliant blue autumn sky. Firemen and first responders loaded with equipment, many of them husbands and fathers answering the call of duty, rank upon rank of them rushing down the choking streets of lower Manhattan to undertake impossible missions from which many of them would never return. We remember with terrible clarity, the sudden impact of that second aircraft caught off center and banking in the frame of the camera as it zoomed, laden with jet fuel and human beings in their final seconds of living and the unbelievable impact. Streets full of spectators staring up with faces frozen in horror terrifying images of people following, of falling 
and falling in midair, plummeting to earth. Images which would be pulled from the news sites and the magazines in the days to come, banished from the national consciousness like unmarked graves on account of the intimacy of the horror they provided. But not excised from our memories, we see them still falling and falling. And now we know there were hundreds of them. And we even know the names of some of them. We did not look away, said one survivor, out of sheer dignity for those who had no choice, believing that we must bear witness to their suffering. And then not once, but twice, the final demise as the towers collapsed, imploding in upon themselves, sinking, crushing, burying, steel and stone and glass and human beings pulverized into dust and debris and ejected upward and outward, choking the city, blowing out over the water. Spectators running for their very lives, covered with the acrid dust of death. In the days to come, there were new images of fires burning in the E-ring of a building called the Pentagon. Images of a blackened crater outside a Pennsylvania town with a strange name, Shanksville, from which would soon emerge evidence of heroic struggle. Images of smoking, gaping holes in lower New York, of twisted steel girders in the shape of a cross, of bone-tired firemen and crushed trucks and American flags, of lifeless bodies and tear-stained faces and bulletin boards posted with the descriptions of the missing, so many missing. Images of the deep azure blue September sky, unmarred by the white scratches of jetliner contrails. We remember At the 10-year mark of that terrible event, we argued about the ethics of rebroadcasting those videos of the towers collapsing, afraid somehow that a measure of the intensity of what we felt that day might well up us in us again, that we truly might remember. Today at the 20-year mark, there's been a hardly a, a mention of it in the days leading up to this morning, maybe because of our humiliating behavior recently in Afghanistan, maybe because it's now just a bit too distant or that we have become too habituated. All week, I looked for it on the news sites, stories having to do with the 20th anniversary of 911. After all, 20 is a pretty significant anniversary, is it not? And finally yesterday, by noon on Friday, there were a few stories finally making their way into the top tier on the major news pages of the web. Fox had three, ABC had two, CNN had one. And by evening, more were being posted. CBS finally put up half a dozen. But it seemed as if 20 years later, we don't want to remember, but we do. We remember with our ears. 
hearing the voices of our nation's leaders speaking with a tone of resolve we'd never heard in their voices before in our lifetimes. 20 years ago in our home, we had no television. So we listened to our president's address on huddled around the radio. Our whole family gathered there in the living room, much like the families of previous generations had done in times of national peril. Even our youngest daughter, Amelia, not quite four years old, she listened because we told her to listen. It was in a historic moment, a historic address. We remember with our feelings, feelings of disbelief, of waking up the next morning with the sun shining in the windows and thinking for the briefest moment that none of it was real, that it had all been a bad dream. But our denial refused to make it go away. Feelings of anger, a thirst for revenge. Who did this? Of sadness and despair as it slowly dawned on us what so many had lost and what we had all lost. We wondered and we feared what we might lose in the days to come. We wondered what will happen next. And we felt wonder, too, at the intentional outpouring of goodwill from allied nations whose loyalty had seemed sleepy and even dormant up to that moment, and even goodwill from former enemies who now stood with us. We wondered at the smallness of the death toll, considering what it might have been. 50,000 workers should have been inside those buildings, but it was an election day, and most of the people had gone to the polls to vote. And even a new kind of wonder, as we sensed the first stirrings of a national unity, an American resolve not experienced since that generation we called the greatest generation went to a war at a place called Pearl Harbor, 60 years before. And we began to look to a new generation of Americans primed for greatness to do it again. Would America rise to the challenge? Feelings of wonder at 98 to 0 votes taken in the Senate and pictures of our congressmen and women, Democrats and Republicans alike, it made it no difference, standing shoulder to shoulder singing God Bless America. Today, of course, so many look back with a sense of disillusionment, if not shame, when they remember that patriotism. They seem almost humiliated that it happened, but it was very real back then, just 20 years ago. All that happened between Tuesday and Friday, and then on Sabbath, we gathered to worship. It was a pretty somber worship experience where I was that day on that first Sabbath. The airport in Maine had been the entry point for several of the hijackers. One of the men in my small group was an American Airlines pilot who was normally assigned to fly Flight 11. And he was off that day. His entire air crew perished. One of the employees of Cantor Fitzgerald, 
whose firm lost almost 700 workers that day would become a member of our congregation in the months to come. But on that first Sabbath gathered there, we recited together the first few verses of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's still true today. A lot has changed in America in 20 years. We have morphed from a people united to a people in apparent disarray, haunted by distrust of each other. On the other hand, not much has changed because God is still God. He is still a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. The righteous run into it. And God is still a good God. His character is still upright and gracious. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures how long? Forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this. Psalm 107. One reason that we come here week by week, especially in times of trouble, is to be reminded that God is good. That's the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. We must be reminded because the terrible tragedies of life, be they national in scale or personal in scale, call into question this truth and seek to shake loose our confidence and our resolve to cling to him to run into the strong tower of his good character and good name. So we come week by week. Only some weeks we seem to be in more desperate need to be reminded. And that Sabbath 20 years ago surely was one of those weeks. We remember the national resurgence of faith in God that seemed to blossom overnight in response to the horror of that day. Churches filled. People looked to God for assurance. Of course, many people today experience embarrassment or even shame over that too, as if turning to God in the face of catastrophe is something disgraceful. In fact, the only thing shameful about it was that it didn't last. It was a short-lived spiritual revival. So many people chose to place their trust in the flag rather than in the cross. The truth is this. There, has, there is never dishonor in turning to God when disaster strikes. It is exactly the response that he desires Surely one of the lessons we have learned in the two decades since that terrible day is that people have a much poorer track record of depending on God when things are normal, when things are all okay. Our challenge isn't so much to trust God when things are bad. It's to trust him when things are good. One theme that historians often speak of 
regarding 911 was how our nation was fundamentally changed on that day. They speak of it as a coming of age, a loss of innocence, a fundamental shift, that we are changed people now, that 911 was a kind of watershed event. And certainly that's part of what we were sensing in the confusion of the immediate aftermath 20 years ago. We couldn't articulate it yet, but we knew it, that life wouldn't be the same anymore. Things would be different going forward. A lot of the old assumptions would no longer be valid. And whenever there is a seismic social shift, People look around for the anchor points, for the reference points, for the bedrock that doesn't change. And I think, I think that part of what makes this present day seem so upside down, so troubling to so many people, is that so many of the anchor points are being undermined. But it is into this very uncertainty that Psalm 46 so eloquently speaks. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There's solid ground here. When all the other points of reference are in flux, there is one foundation that will not be shaken. God is our refuge. God is our strength. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. In the years since he made his famous speech, President Bush has been criticized and derided for introducing and naming what he called the axis of evil allied against freedom-loving people. This week I read an opinion piece stating that when we remember 911 this year, we should do it without assigning blame. Yet even today, most people who witnessed that day agreed that what happened on September 11th, 2001, was a manifestation of evil on a scale and with a purity never before seen by so many people simultaneously. A diabolical, premeditated, and executed world event. In the presence of that kind of evil, the question always comes, where is God then? All those innocents blown up and suffocated and annihilated without a trace. And that's what has been so terribly hard on so many of the survivors, that their loved ones vanished without a trace, reduced to dust. Just last week, just last week, two more 911 victims were identified from tiny bits of remains using brand-new state-of-the-art enhanced DNA reading techniques. So where was God? On the evening our family sat around the radio and listened to the president, he asked Americans everywhere to pray for all the grieving ones and for all the children whose lives had been shattered and for all those whose sense of safety and security had been threatened. And then he said, 
and I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us spoken through the ages in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. No matter what other mistakes he may have made in the following years, it was a beautiful picture of God he gave to our nation that night. A picture of a God who goes with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Where was God that Tuesday when thousands of lives were snuffed out? God was with those who suffered and died that day. He was with every person on those airplanes, close beside them. A year later, we heard the story of Todd Beamer, a passenger aboard United Flight 93, now on its suicide mission to blow up the Capitol. Secretly using an air phone, he learned that two airliners had been used as missiles to bring down the Twin Towers. He and a small group of compatriots, knowing what must be in store for them, created a courageous plan they knew would probably take their lives. They would wrest control of the aircraft from the hijackers or perish trying. The last person Todd Beamer talked to that morning was the telephone operator on the other end of the airphone. He told her what they were going to do. His final request was that she would recite the words of the 23rd Psalm for him. And so she did. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Before she finished reciting, Todd Beamer had laid the airphone down on the seat and uttered his final words, let's roll. God was with those people on Flight 93 and the people on American 175. He was present. He was active. He was with every person who stood terrified at windowless holes 90 stories in the air as they made those terrible choices, burn and suffocate or jump. He was with those firemen and policemen and EMTs who penetrated the infernos, the stockbrokers and secretaries crushed under avalanches of steel and stone. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This has ever been the purpose of God to be with his people, to be in relation with those he has made, to come close to them. The word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us, John writes in his gospel. God came near, and God comes near still. He is close, especially in dark times, in the valley of the shadow of death. I recently reread re the book Night by Elie Wiesel, who received the Nobel Prize for that book. Elie Wiesel was an adolescent survivor of the Holocaust and has written about his experiences perhaps more hauntingly than anybody in our age. He told of a public hanging of a 13-year-old boy by the Nazi SS. Jewish prisoners were forced to march by the boy as he hung there at the end of the rope 
struggling between life and death. And as they marched by, one of the prisoners asked, where is God now? Where is he? And Wiesel writes that at that moment, he heard a voice rising up within his own soul that said, where is he? He's here. He's hanging at the end of that rope. Jesus himself suffered death on the cross, so he is close to those who suffer. He is close to the brokenhearted. He is near to those whose time it is to journey through that valley. We need to remember that 20 years out because one day every single one of us will be required to make that journey unless Jesus comes first. And because the question of where God is in time of trouble is a perennial question. It has been asked at every disaster, small and large, since September 11th, and there have been an unusual number of them. So this weekend, people remember. In the first dozen or so years after the attacks, people talked a lot about the lessons we had learned as a nation. I haven't heard so much talk about that lately. Certainly, whatever unity we had as a nation has become elusive. But then late yesterday, there was an interview published with the Air Force fighter pilot who had been tasked with bringing down Flight 93. At the close of the interview, Lieutenant Heather Penny, now retired, said this, and I quote, I hope that now, 20 years after the attacks, our nation can come together in the same way it did then. We have to make a commitment to engaging in that kind of dialogue and remembering that there are things that connect us, that what it means to be American is so much more than the differences we have. We have to move beyond ourselves, end quote. We need to learn that, don't we? How about as a church? What have been the lessons for us? I think there are a couple of them that are important, and I'll state them in terms of questions. The first one is, who are we going to trust? If 911 taught Christians anything, it taught us the futility of trusting in humanly devised systems for our ultimate well-being. In times of trouble, God does draw near to his people, but there is a balance to that. He also asks his people to draw near to him. Because there is an enemy loose in the world, an enemy whose mission is to kill, steal, and destroy. So we need a strong tower. We need a refuge. We need a fortress that will not fail or be overrun. Years ago in seminary, I took a class in biblical archaeology. It was probably a mistake. Archaeology, as you remember, is the science of studying past cultures and civilizations by sifting through the buried debris of their ruins. Although much of what I studied now lies buried somewhere in distant memory, one principle has remained vivid 
one principle has stayed with me. Listen to this now. The more complex and advanced and sophisticated a culture becomes, the more fragile it becomes. And when it collapses, the more complete and thorough its destruction. It has happened over and over and over again down through history. The more complex and advanced and sophisticated a culture becomes, the more fragile it becomes, and when it collapses, the more complete and thorough its destruction. 20, 20 years ago, we watched that principle play out before our very eyes. And this morning, we have remembered it again, that terrible, indelible image of collapse. In many ways, those buildings epitomized American greatness. They were iconic representations of all of our human achievements, and they disintegrated into dust in less than two hours' time. No news site I saw yesterday replayed any of those videos from September 11th. I believe we ought to watch those videos on the anniversaries. We must remember that to the degree that we place our ultimate hope and trust in those things that we can create, whether they be financial markets or governments or military forces or social culture, to the degree we place our ultimate trust and hope in those things we create without a dependence on the Almighty, to that degree will our hopes be dashed and ruined. To that degree we will experience anxiousness and fear for the future. The lesson has been repeated to us in disasters of lesser magnitude for the last 20 years now, but it's difficult for us to learn. God says, I am your refuge and your strength. I am your ever-present help in trouble. When we come to really know that, then we won't fear. Among Christians, one of the frequently debated, debated effects of September 11th is the question, have we become more fearful? Have we? Let's just say this. We know there are worse things coming than 911, don't we? We know that. As Anne Graham Lotz said, and this is in your bulletin, it was just an alarm. And the alarm is still going off because people haven't learned. Be still, God says in verse 10 of Psalm 46, and know that I am God. In other words, hush. Trust me. I am eternal, unchangeable, and good. I am he whose love endures forever. From my hand, you will never be lost. From under my wing, you will never be plucked. David wrote this in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in what? The name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Because his name is good. Because his name is unchangeable. 
It's not that David had no use for horses and chariots. He had plenty of them. It's not that he didn't trust his army. The evidence is David wrote this prayer on the eve of the battle against a powerful enemy, the Ammonites, in which David's army destroyed 40,000 of the enemy's army. The man who wrote this prayer used his army, and it was well-trained and well-equipped. But ultimately, his trust was in the God of his army. Those who depend on these things apart from God will be brought to their knees, David writes. They will fail. But those who trust in the name of the Lord God will stand firm. God has entrusted nations with the responsibility to protect their citizens and to punish those who do evil. There's been lots of debate as to whether this nation should or should not have used its military after September 11th. Twenty long years of war in Afghanistan, and the very ones who harbored those who executed the attack 20 years ago are now back in power. I suppose the debate will go on for a long time. History will be written and revised and rewritten. Still, the New Testament teaches that God lays upon government the responsibility to punish evildoers. The job of a just government, according to Scripture, is not to provide jobs or even health care. It is to provide reasonable, reasonable protection of its people against enemies. Lots of treasure we have spent, lots of lives lost, lots of bodies maimed over the two decades we fought in the Middle East. We made some mistakes, we did some things right, we've spent a bunch more money on domestic security, Maybe it's good for us to remember back to the days immediately following 911. Everybody expected that we would soon get hit again, harder. But for 20 years, it didn't happen. But ultimate security comes only from God. He is the unshakable fortress, the rock, the strong tower against the foe. Without God, the best Efforts are but human refuges, fickle, transient. Someday they will all collapse. David was a great warrior with a top-notch military, but he also wrote this, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. So that's one lesson. Who will we trust? And the other might be, what will we do? What will we do? Wes Stafford, who for years was president of Compassion International, writes, something new awoke in me on 911. Life was more precious. Time was short. Evil was frighteningly real. And I was more motivated than ever to ensure that good prevailed. I became more passionate about my mission to fight the evil that grinds good, hardworking, and even godly people into poverty and desperate circumstances. 
There's something about danger that tends to bring mission into sharp focus. If anything, danger makes the mission of the church more critical. People all around us are going to perish. They have got to come to know that God is good and that he is the strong tower, unshakable in a world of misery, unfailing when everything else finally comes apart. Who is it that's going to make that happen? Who's going to do that? If we don't, who will? Our mission as God's people remains the same. Rescue those who are about to perish. The most inspirational aspects of the 911 memorials that have occurred through the years are the stories of the heroes, all the kindnesses and the sacrifices, big and small, that were offered to help others during those dark days. One story to emerge early on was the sacrifice of Rick Rescorla, a retired Army colonel and Vietnam vet who was chief of security at the investment firm Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Rescorla already had a storied career and was held in high esteem by the troops he'd led as a non-com in Vietnam. But by the early 1990s, he'd left the Army and was working at the World Trade Center. After the first bombing of the World Trade Center that happened in 1993, Rescorla instituted a training regimen that the employees of Morgan Stanley came to detest. He created an evacuation plan, and he drilled the employees four times a year, requiring that every single one of them descend 160 flights of stairs all the way to the ground and exit out the building four times a year. His people didn't like it. They complained, but Rescorla wouldn't back down. When the first plane hit the South Tower that sunny Tuesday morning, Rescorla defied the direct orders of the Port Authority of New York, who ordered the people in the North Tower to remain in their offices. Instead, he put into effect his well-rehearsed evacuation plan. He evacuated the employees from the company offices high in the North Tower. Into the stairwells they went. And by the time the second plane hit, most of the employees were below the point of impact and well on their way to safety and the rest of their lives. But Rescorla returned to the building again and again to make sure everybody got out. He was reportedly spotted as high as the, 70, the 72nd floor, clearing whole floors as he descended, keeping people moving quickly down the stairwells, encouraging them by singing Cornish folk songs and checking their names off against the company roster. His advanced preparation and courage in the face of danger that day saved over 2,700 people. In fact, only two Morgan Stanley employees were lost that morning. Rick Rescorla was last seen on floor 10, headed up to locate and save that last missing person. And minutes later, the building collapsed. His remains were never found. As the years went by, many other stories of courage and sacrifice emerged, like that of Jeff Gertler, 
a Port Authority inspector who worked on floor 88, who chose to help his asthmatic coworker, Judith Reese, slowly descend 176 flights of stairs in a smoky, deserted stairwell after all the others had passed them in their rush to escape. He could easily have made good his own escape, but he chose to stick with this acquaintance of his instead, guiding her slowly downward toward safety and breathable air. What Jeff Gertler did that Tuesday morning made no difference for thousands of people or even dozens of people, but it made all the difference in the world for one person. Rick Rascorla and Jeff Gertler, both heroes. And their lesson, I think, to us is simple. Every day, every single one of us is called by God to participate in the boldest rescue mission there's ever been. And we're playing for keeps. This isn't a drill. The enemy is vicious. But God has promised, I will be with you to the end of the age. I am a strong tower, a refuge, an ever-present help in time of trouble. And that we remember. <laughs>